Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. How are you? How are you? I'm good. It's a it's a beautiful day here. I don't know what's going on, but when I woke up this morning, it's it's uh, July 25th here, and um, it was 66 degrees when I woke up. That's nice. And that is, on uh, yeah, you know, yesterday or the day before it was 101, and today I think the high is like 88 or something. Oh, that's much better. That's crazy. I mean, we're, everyone's outside. Everyone's loving. I, I sat outside and ate lunch today. It's amazing. That's beautiful. I mean, I well, and, uh, and the heat was really, uh, it was really hurting people. I'm guessing. Well, uh, people in Texas are used to the heat, but it does hurt. Yeah. Hurts bad. Uh, it's a beautiful day here also. I think it may, I don't even know, it, it, we may be having the exact same day here. Let me, let me check the weather. That'd be let me amazing see if, if it says, like, says here uh, it's going to get up to 80 today. Oh, it's even cooler. Man, that's yeah, nice. Yeah, sev- 72 right now. Yeah, that's the thing about the Pacific Northwest. You just, you have, in, in the times of year when it's unpleasant everywhere else, it's very pleasant there. But the rest of the year, it seems like it's, it's too cold and rainy for me. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, although this is the, this is the conundra. Hmm. Is that uh, singular? Is, that's a singular. Yeah, I guess. No one says that. That's uh, I learned something today. <laughs> um, um, or maybe conundra is the plural. You know, conundrum. I'm, conundrum is singular. Is singular. Conundra is the the plural. And I the think conundra. Phenomenon is the one I always get backwards. It's phenomena. One of them is plural. <laughs> what is? I knew you were going to do that. One is plural and one is singular. Mm-hmm. Phenomena is plural. Phenomenon is singular. Right. So in this case, it would be conundra, multiple conundrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the Pacific Northwest, it's that there's no place better. And that, I don't mean that there are no places that are that you could argue are just as good, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. You could argue Austin is just as good as Portland, but I don't think you could argue Austin is better. It's it's great there. Mm-hmm. You could argue that Santa Barbara is. Um, well, I don't know. You might be able to argue that Santa Barbara is at least weather-wise a lot better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, living in Santa Barbara, it would be it would it would be a drag. It wouldn't take long before it was a drag unless you really had a different at least I would have to have a completely different outlook on life. I I think I think Santa Barbara might be okay. Might be nice. But it's too expensive. That's the problem. So, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here in Seattle. I could move anywhere right now. I could move anywhere. I could move anywhere in the world. Um, but when I run down the list of places to move, you know, I toss them all out pretty fast. I just heard two seconds before, um, before you called. Yeah. I got a text from the guy that I'm trying to get to sell me his house. And he texted me. You know, and it's Thursday. He said he was going to text me on Tuesday. 
He said, hey there, after giving it some thought, I'm going to move forward with my plans to remodel the house. Oh, so he's pulling out. Good luck. There are some other nice homes in the area coming onto dick. the market. What a dick. Yeah. Yeah. He's bad. And, and the problem is not, I don't even really care that he's not going to sell it to me. I just don't want him to remodel it. But I don't have any power here. Like he wants, he's the, he's the, he's the enemy of good. He wants to take this intact house that's yeah. only, that's like, was owner occupied up until basically it fell into his hands. And he wants to quote unquote update it and make it look like every other house. And, um, I wish I could stop him, but what can you do? I mean, I could text him back and say, Chris, I don't even care that you're not selling it to me. Just don't move forward with your plans. <laughs> you could. Yeah, you could say that. You own this house and you are obligated by God to not do what you're going to do. Yeah. But what is that going to accomplish? He's not going to be like, you know what? You're right. I'll, I'll run it as a museum. You know, he's going to do what he's going to do. And he, uh, he sounds like a very unhappy person, but I also, who knows what I sound like. Anyway, moving forward yesterday, I was looking online and I said, you know, maybe I don't want to live in a house. Maybe I want to buy an industrial space. Oh, of course you do. Now I've done this before, looked at industrial spaces and they tend to be a lot more expensive because people use them for real life things and they're in short supply mm -hmm. and, um, they're zoned for business, right? So you can't just go buy, you know, you would think. Oh, 3,000 square foot house cost this, maybe a 3,000 square foot cinder block garage with a cement floor that's covered with oil will cost a similar amount. And it's like, nope, cost three times as much because it's commercial property. Hmm. But every once in a while, I look around at the commercial listings because some of them are very fun. Like there was one uh, about 10 years ago out on the Washington coast where one of those 1940s bungalow motels was for sale. Mm -hmm. It was a block from the beach. It had probably 15 bungalows and an owner manager cabin. Um, you know, the, and the, the cabin, the front cabin had a, had a check-in desk and a, and a circular driveway and a, you know, an old forties sign. And because it was out in, in BFE, it was, it was affordable. And I was like, well, what am I even doing? Why am I not running a 40s motor hotel <laughs> a block from the beach out in tsunami country? Would you run it as a hotel or would you, would you just live in it and, and, and use all the rooms for different jobs? <laughs> 15 different bungalows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I would... I would have the main house and I would probably keep a couple of bungalows reserved for myself. Um, I think the mistake that people like me make is thinking that because I moved out there, that place would become a destination for my friends and for interesting people. Mm -hmm. hey, as long as they pay, who cares? Well, but I, but I don't think it's true. I think that every, every one of my friends would at one point drive out there and spend the weekend or one night. And that would all after the first two years, Oh, they, that would all dry would up and, and I'd now. never see, I'd never see him again. And I would just become like 
some local guy. Ah, the you, guy could that runs like the a, you could do like a food camp thing where you have like a brain trust of people that come out every, you know, once a month and, and, and make it like a Mecca and you could have, you know, like a whole thing, like, a, like people, like it becomes a destination. You make it a destination. Oof. Oof. I, it ends up, <clears throat> it ends up that I didn't pursue that. Although, you know, a guy this morning sent me a, sent me a, Real estate listing in Dayton, Tennessee, mm. for Ma- mayor, uh, mayor's income, Tennessee. <laughs> what you ever heard of that? That's a Tom Waits song. It's um, no. what's he building in there? There's oh, a line. I know he that. says, "Oh, he's from Mayor's Income, Tennessee." <laughs> Not a real place. I found out. It's good. That's a nice line. Yeah. Um, Dayton, Tennessee, is <clears throat> where the scopes monkey trial happened Mm. oh yeah it's in the part of tennessee that's not on the way really to anywhere if you're in chattanooga and you want to go to the oak ridge tennessee um like weapons plant Mm -hmm. you would drive through dayton but that's not really on the way between anywhere and anywhere i mean no offense to our listeners who live in chattanooga um, I think it's like a recreation area, maybe down. Maybe it's mining country. Okay. Who knows? But it's not a part of the it's not a part of the United States that I think of as I mean it's it would be to me as remote or more remote than moving to the Washington coast, even though it's a wonderful house. Mm. But so <clears throat> I was looking at these uh, I was looking at some some industrial properties in the region, and I found just down the road on a very busy street. Just one of those streets that's got a Fred Meyer and a gas station and a Taco Bell. You know, it's like busy, 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 busy. There's an old hair salon for sale. (laughs) And as soon as I saw it, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. What if I just abandoned the whole like suburban house thing tucked back in the trees? What if I moved into a hair salon that was right on the main drag, like all day and all night, just cars going by this hair salon's got like 15 parking spaces. (laughs) It's got a big sign out front that says, you know, like a big neon sign up on a pole. Yeah. Uh, that has uh, that actually has a reader board, you know, or or not a, not an electric one, but one that you put you put like magnetic letters up that I could uh, that I could change every morning. Yes, and say like abandon all hope or whatever, keep moving, get out of the way. Um, it's got like hair salon chairs bolted to the floor, and I'm and I was just mentally picturing myself like this this would be this would be a new direction. And I could kind of rehabilitate this place. <laughs> be a big, a big change in direction for you. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't cut hair. I mean, any more than I already do. Maybe a little bit more than I already do, since I would have the chairs. But <laughs> you know, to live like in a in an alternative space. I mean, the the thing is, it's it's it's. It's still zoned commercial, and I, it may be there may be tax disadvantages to doing this. Yeah, but um, but as an investment, I think that this property is going to continue to be 
valuable. You know, it's a business property in a, in a growing part of the state. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm just sitting here processing in real time that this guy has, that this guy has pushed back and said, he's not ready to sell. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe I write him and say, what's your, what's your fuck off price? Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Did when you saw that it was for sale, were you browsing MLS listings? Were you working with a real estate agent? Were you just driving by and you saw a for sale sign or what? Are you talking about my, my hair salon? No, the guy who's not selling the home. Oh, the guy uh, who pulled, pulled out of it. Oh, I, no, I slipped a letter under his door. Oh, so this um, was just unsolicited. You just liked the house and wanted to buy it? Yeah. It, it, See, it, that's just, it, you left that whole part out. This is the crux of the story, I think. Well, I, you know, the, the problem is I, I, uh, I've been doing, I've been chasing this house for almost a year. It sold, the original owners who built the house in 1959 sold it to someone in August of last year. And mm-hmm. then they, I think, broke up after they bought the house, put it immediately back on the market, sold it a second time to, the, to this guy that I'm talking to in November of last year. But the first people that bought it never moved in. And this second guy never moved in. Uh, he comes, he stays at the house every, he stays at the house one or two weekends a month. Mm-hmm. Every other weekend he comes and stays for two days because he's visiting his kids uh, because his wife divorced him and he has two young daughters. Uh, and it's this, you know, it's a giant house tucked in the trees, secluded lot, original, everything. And he is never there. And so I slipped this letter under his door saying, hey, this is the house that I wanted. I tried to buy it and couldn't. I didn't have the money, but now I do. Why don't you sell it to me? And he called me and was like, yeah, I'm really bonded to the place. And I was like, that's bullshit. You're here. You've stayed here a combined like seven times in the last last half a year, right? I mean, two weekends a month is pushing it. And it's ridiculous that you would buy a huge house in the trees to visit your kids every two weeks. Like, you should get a condo. You should stay in a hotel. You should, you know, get like a townhouse if you want a modern kitchen. And he's like, well, you know, I really love the architecture. And I'm like, you don't if you're going to rip it all out and replace it. He's just the, he's just one of the sort of, I don't know, he's one of the toxics. Hmm. We would like to say thank you very much to Flatiron School. Are you tired of your day job and ready to launch a career in tech? At Flatiron School, they teach people with little to no experience in tech the skills that they need to change careers in as little as four months. Learn software engineering, data science, or UX UI design. And you can learn it online or on WeWork campuses in New York, London, and around the world. You'll learn from expert instructors and join WeWork's dynamic entrepreneurial community and change careers with confidence with one-to-one career coaching and their tuition back guarantee. Follow their proven job search framework and receive a job in six months or your tuition back. Join the thousands of students who have changed things. And if you are ready for a change, visit flatironschool.com slash roadwork. It's spelled just like you'd guess, flatironschool.com slash roadwork and learn how you can get your future started today. Thanks very much to Flatiron School for making this show possible. So, but I was hoping to, I was hoping to save this house at least from the, 
from the crushing wheel of people that think that a refrigerator that works perfectly well but doesn't have an ice maker in the door is something that needs to get pulled out and thrown into a landfill and replaced with a refrigerator that is kind of a plastic stainless steel coated piece of shit, but it has an ice maker in the door or it has a freaking like laptop in the door or whatever. I mean, Mm -hmm. the refrigerators you see at the, at the, the ones that they're selling as expensive ones. Now you open the door and there's an inside door that's made out of lucite and you open that door and inside that door, there's another, then there's a puzzle box and they, you know, they, you can play TV on your refrigerator Um, I'm sure you could sit and play games on it. And meanwhile, one after another, perfectly good refrigerator is getting pulled out and and perfectly good stoves and sinks and toilets. They're all just getting dumped and replaced with just shit. Modern stuff is shit. You could pay $6,000 for a thing now. And if you take the plastic sheeting off of it, underneath it, it's a piece of shit. And we're throwing away this, you know, this stuff that, I mean, a lot of these refrigerators were like, for all intents and purposes, hand built. And, uh, yeah, they're just, they don't have, um, they don't have a freaking crisper drawer or whatever. Well, you know, the problem, the problem is that modern furniture, uh, furniture, (laughs) modern appliances don't last the way that the old ones used to. So for example, we have a KitchenAid brand oven that in the, I don't know, five or six years that we've had it has needed to be repaired four times. And each time it has to do with one of the burners burning itself out. We, we don't do any kind of extreme cooking in this thing you know, um, we probably use the oven once a day for normal things, you know, and these burners keep going out. It just happened again last week. And at some point you reach a stage where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm dumb if I keep fixing it as opposed to getting rid of it and, you know, and replacing it. Mm-hmm. It looks new and it's a really, it was like a, a really nice one. You know, it was like a, a big upgrade to what we had had in there. But you would think that it's just, at the same time, it's just an oven. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a heating element. Heat goes, it goes through it. It makes it hot. That's it. That's all the oven's doing. It's not complicated. Right. Nowhere near as complicated as a refrigerator or a washing machine. It's just, it's simple. And these things, it keeps going out, keeps going out. So finally we're, at, we're getting a new one now, but I'm with you. I, I feel like there's so many things that could be repaired. When I try to get something, I I get something because I want it to last. I'm not talking about computers and things that have like software on them that need to be updated and then get, get become harder and harder to use. But like, I still have the same hammer that I got in high school. It works great. Of course it's a hammer. It's simple. It does not much to it, but I'm with you on that. I think there's, there's just this disposable mentality goes deep. It goes deep. I can't, <clears throat> I can't abide it. 
but I have to abide it. I have to aloha. And you can only do what you can do. Mm-hmm. And people listening to our program, hopefully, uh, are are not the ones that are currently looking at a classic home and picturing themselves gutting it and making it look like a new construction apartment. Right. Hopefully they're not. I talked on uh, on my program with Merlin the other day about how um, those guys that come around your neighborhood knock on your door and try and sell you double-pane windows when you have single-pane oh, windows. Right, right. That those guys are scammers. And uh, and somebody came on the um, the Facebook site where uh, fans of these programs uh, congregate called mm-hmm. Gary's Van. Right. And wrote a kind of, you know, an angry screed about how double pane windows are good. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> I wrote him back and said, I don't think that you're right. And also, how dare you? My double pane windows are much better. Double pane windows are not really, though. If you if you think of it in terms of the let's say twenty years, mm-hmm. the cost of the the quote unquote lost energy mm-hmm. that goes out of a single pane window is that what they use as a selling point versus the cost of replacing all your windows, like it'll never pay off. I, I totally agree with that, but I mean, they're, they're better in that they do a much better job of insulating from the outside air, especially if I was with, building, with if I was building a house today, of course I would use double pane windows better with noise. The, the question is, do you buy a 1905 house and rip out all the 1905 windows that are doing a perfectly fine job and replace them with vinyl windows made 15 days ago. And mm-hmm. the answer is no. I agree with you. But the window salespeople sort of prey on a combination of a feeling that you want to do the environmentally right thing and you want to save money on energy. And they, they get people in these contracts to like rip out basically, you know, and, the, and it's the same argument. This whole build green thing is a scam if it involves tearing down a house built in 1905 to build a new house that's quote-unquote green. There's nothing about that process that is green. If you are tearing down, if you're tearing up an asphalt parking lot Mm -hmm. and building green condos or green townhomes, then yes, it's probably a net positive. But the... And, and, you know, and you could make an argument, an urbanist argument, that tearing down a single family home and building five townhomes is a better use of the land from an urban point of view. You get more people in the same amount of land. And this is a, this is an argument about concentrating people in cities, which eliminates transportation problems and, you know, cities should be hubs, et cetera. So there is an argument to be made that if you think of the city as a collective organism and there's a 
4,000 square foot Victorian home occupied by two people, that that land could be put to better use. But for the most part, um, you know, certainly the, the redevelopment isn't driven by, by urbanism as a philosophy. It's driven by the profit motive. And it's, but it's, it's done so cynically, like those signs that say built green, they just infuriate me because I sit and watch the, the backhoes come in and tear down these homes that are made out of old growth wood and that were, were functioning as rooming houses, you know, that already had 15 people living in them Mm -hmm. and watch all that, that all that perfectly good you know, built-ins and leaded glass and, you know, all this beautiful stuff that is irreplaceable. Watch it just go into dumpsters and truck to a landfill. And then they come in with like, uh, galvanized studs and they staple up some wallboard and sell these townhomes for $800,000 a piece and they're selling them like, <clears throat> this is the green alternative. Like buying this house is a virtue act. And I, you know, it's just like, it's the, ugh. I get, I, it's not that, it's not that it, it really dislodges me from Aloha anymore. Mm-hmm. It used to though, Dan. Yeah. I'm just sort of channeling a thing that I used to feel 15 years ago. Now it's become so rampant. What can you do? You can't walk around Seattle trying to save everything. <clears throat> We're desperately trying to save the show box. And really, nobody cares. There's 400 people in the city that care. And nobody cares about this house in Normandy Park. Except me. Mm-hmm. That, makes you, that makes you feel bad, I think. Yeah. We each in our, t- in our way and in our time have to deal with the fact that we're not in control of the world. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think it's, it's, it's maybe at the core of the contemporary problem in politics is that it's always been true in politics that if you controlled the world and everybody did what you say and everybody believed what you believe, then yes, it would be great. It would be amazing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Our problems would be solved. This is the this is the thing that people. This is how people walk into politics. They walk into politics thinking, "Hey, I've thought this through, and I know this is true, and that is true, and the solution is obvious." And so everybody just needs to get on board, and then what's the big deal? problem solved <laughs> and they <clears throat> they they kind of come in with that mentality and then they see that there's somebody on the other side who's like well no i've got it figured out and the solution is the opposite of what you say and your <clears throat> your natural reaction is like what no you're not listening you're not listening i've got it figured out follow me now as I explain it to you, then the other person's like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I think that I think you're wrong. And neither, I mean, in the past, 
when politics was when people sat uh, on pickle barrels and argued politics in the general store, you know, and then the, then the congressman would come through town and they'd sit and argue politics at him. Um, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a pastime almost, but the challenge the congressman faces is he goes in and sits in his chair and the guy across the aisle says, I don't think you understand, but it's a professional organization. And eventually they, <clears throat> they realize if they're going to get anything done, they have to, they have to come to some agreement. And now politics isn't, <clears throat> it's not a, uh, it's not a diversion. It is like central to all of our, to all of our like daily routines. It's not like we sit in the morning and read the newspaper like, like people in days of old. <clears throat> the first thing we think of when we wake up in the morning and the last thing we think of before we go to bed is, is political. It's politics. It's the thing we're all, we're all soaking in it all the time. But no one's any smarter or any clearer no one's no one's none of it's any better explained than it was in the pickle barrel days right and everybody's got a platform to say basically the same thing which is if everyone agreed with me or if everyone did what i said all these problems would be solved people just need to do what you, what you say do what i say right, right. <laughs> they either need to wake up right? They need to be educated. They need to let the scales fall from their eyes and stop being so ignorant. And of course, now we've added, they need to stop being so bigoted. They need to wake up. Or if they refuse to wake up, if they simply cannot wake up, then they need to be forced. They need to be forced to do what I know is virtuous, and what they seem to, they fail to realize is virtuous because they're either stupid, evil, or, uh, or deluded. And if you approach every political issue, if you wake up in the morning and you think anyone that doesn't feel like I do on this issue is either stupid, evil, or <laughs> deluded, uh -huh. you know, you're kind of done. And if the other side is doing the same thing, if the other side is convinced that you're stupid, evil, or deluded, where, what are you, how are you going to, how are you going to, there's, it's not politics. Well, I mean, it is politics at that point. I mean, what you're talking about is just a, you're talking about the lead up to war, right? Mm. I mean, th people ask, why, why do we have wars? And there are a lot of reasons we have wars and, and a lot of it is just conquering territory and splitting up the the shares but this kind of you know like french revolution style war these like philosophical wars or these wars where um where the idea is to overthrow mm -hmm. the oppressor um the lead up to it is this kind of um this kind of thing that we're in now, which is 
your opponent becomes inhuman to you. So stupid, so evil, and so deluded that you give up. You give up trying to convince them. You give up trying to trying to win them over. And you feel like either, um, I mean, you, you start to lose faith that educating them or um, helping them along is, is even possible. And you feel like they just need to be forced. We just need to force the opposition um, to accept our viewpoint because we know it to be true. It's not that we're accepting, uh, it's not that we're forcing them to accept our viewpoint because we stand, because we think we stand anything to gain from it, right? We're not saying they need to accept our viewpoint because we're trying to make money for ourselves or we're trying to, um, to make ourselves kings. It's that we, it's that we believe we are correct and we're 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 trying to solve the problem we're trying to make a good world and it's it's super hard to point a finger at someone who thinks they're just trying to make just selfless selflessly trying to make the world a better place Mm -hmm. to point a finger at them and say that they are um that they're acting motivated by a um, selfish desire. Mm. I mean, you know what I mean? Like the, the conservative argument, and I'm talking about the, you know, the sort of darker one is that the left wants to undermine tradition and, uh, make the world a, place where there are seven-year-old drag queens and uh, no one pays any taxes and the United States is ruled by Sharia law and and the conspiracy the feeling in them is that the left wants to do this because the left uh, I think is like motivated by like evil motivated by hatred of god and country and how do you convince them that the uh, the how, how does the left which feels like what they're trying to do is make the world a more equitable place a, a more um open and a place full of opportunity for, for people. You know, how would you, how would you possibly meet in the middle there? There is no middle. It's two completely different languages, completely different universe. So what's the, you know, what's the end result? I mean, if, if we get a democratic president in the next election, Mm -hmm particularly one that's like radicalized the the 30% of the country that's convinced that the that the air force is spraying chemtrails on them 
they're not going to go back in their bottle. You know, they're not Mm going to sit back and say, oh, okay, well, I guess, sure, you know, free college for everybody or whatever. Um, and, And somewhere along the line when I realized that although I knew what the world needed and I knew that if everybody just did what I said, yeah. it would all work. And why, do, why don't people listen and why are they so ignorant? I mean, part of running for city council and realizing that even on the scale, the small scale of Seattle, where generally everyone here shares a political sensibility, like everyone here is more or less a liberal. Mm-hmm. And even here, there is so much antagonism right even though you all generally agree generally right we want to make seattle an an environmentally friendly open city that welcomes everyone that has that provides services for the poor um that is generally clean and inviting and a sanctuary but what that looks like how you accomplish the small detail really of like, well, what do we do about this? Well, what do we do about that? And people go at each other's throats so that the, you know, the accusations of the accusations that fly around here where people are, are people who are generally trying to do a good job are accused of, being in service to global multinational um, banking interests and uh, people are accused of, you know, of wanting to undermine the fabric of society to the point that the city right now is just gridlocked. Nobody can do anything. It's um, city government is a sham. And running for office and being in the middle of that and realizing, oh, wow, I thought that I knew how to run Seattle, at least, on my way to trying to run the the (laughs) U.S. and then run the world. Mm -hmm. I at least thought I knew how to run Seattle. And I couldn't run a community, uh, you know, a community board of 11 people that were trying to get drinking fountains put in on the sidewalks, right? I mean, just going and visiting these meetings and seeing how many little community groups there are, how many, um, how many little districts and, and panels and little boards and all of them using Robert's rules of order, all of them, have a chairperson. They have four people on it on the board that are just trying to do a good job. There are four people on the board that are there because they have somewhat of an ulterior motive. You know, they're, they're representing a narrower constituency. And then there are two people that are there because they're bored and just want to disrupt something. They wake up in the morning and they're like, you know what the world needs? They need, the world needs me to come yeah. straighten people out. That's so right. I'm going to join, join this community board about water fountains and every idea that somebody has, I'm just going to be the opposite. <laughs> right. 
And, you know, they think those people think they're doing a good job. They think that if it weren't for them, uh, that the city wouldn't have any, you'd be astonished at the number of people that just disagree with everything. And if you challenge them about it, they go, well, you know, it's, you need a little bit of a fly in the ointment. You know, I'm doing, I'm doing a good job. I'm doing a, a service to everybody because I'm making them think a little bit harder about what, what they're trying to do. And they'll justify themselves sitting in these meetings and just making everything harder. You know, all right, are we all in agreement? Ready? The motion's about to pass. <laughs> and then this person in the back is like, well, what if we did everything over again and uh, like changed everything? And it's just like, what? No, we were just about to pass this unanimously. Yeah, I know. But what if we just looked at it all again and did it all over and you know, just like, oh my God, the world is full. It's full of people that are just looking for a reason to, they're just looking for something to do, frankly. And they want to feel like they're part of something. And, and those are the ones that are engaged. Those are the ones that are, that care. Right. They care deeply and they're passionate about it. Yeah. 94% of the people are just like, Staring at their refrigerator and wishing it was a different kind. Right. <laughs> I can't rule the world anymore. And I don't believe that I'm going to convince everybody to do what I say. And I don't think I'm ever going to have the power to force them to. And so... Oh, and also, I think what would happen in a norm in a normal arc of life, I think at this age, I would start to be the one that sat in a chair and said, "Well, let's think about what you just said." You know, I would take that professorial place. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm grateful. I'm lucky that this that this show is here and that that podcasting is available to me because I can somewhat uh, uh, fulfill that function. Uh, and, and I think, I think it's enough, you know, I think that, that I don't have to teach a college class now. I don't have to go back and get an advanced degree. I just have to keep kind of studying the way I study and, right. and talking to my friends on the internet. But I also have to, I, I feel that, I feel that pull um, now away from the, the real public square. And I, I feel the pull toward, um, you know, away from teaching at a public university and toward teaching at a small private university right which i feel like is what most of the podcasts i do certainly this one and the one with merlin these are small liberal arts liberal arts colleges tucked up in the trees in some western state it's not you know i'm not teaching at the university of pennsylvania and 
I think that's probably probably my course, you know. <laughs> I realized the other day that we are just living in bad times. We would like to thank Manscaped. They're the number one in men's below-the-belt grooming, if you know what I mean. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Sometimes you just need to trim some things up once in a while. Maybe it's the summertime. Maybe you want to surprise your significant other. Manscaped has you covered. I know every guy has been there at some point with an outdated trim or something old that gives you way too many chances to snag or nick yourself. It's not fun. It hurts. And that's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. (laughs) Their their lawnmower 2.0 as proprietary skin-safe technology so this trimmer won't nick or snag you down below. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. Have you made the ultimate mistake of using the same trimmer on your face or your beard as you've used uh, elsewhere? Please do not raise your hand. I don't want to know. Manscaped, they also have something called the the Crop Preserver, which is an anti-chafing deodorant and moisturizer for your, uh, your down below. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why aren't you putting deodorant on the other areas that get sweaty? For 20% off plus free shipping... With the code ROADWORK, just visit manscaped.com and keep in mind, always use the right tools for the right job. Your undercarriage will thank you. And we thank Manscaped, promo code ROADWORK, for 20% off plus free shipping. Didn't you just say a few episodes back that this was the, the best time to be alive? Well, there's no time like the present. Uh huh. But just in the course of of our lives, we've seen now enough time go by that we've seen good times and bad, Mm -hmm. right? When I was born in 1968, we were in Vietnam, the, the Martin Luther King was killed and RFK and the civil rights movement was under siege and the, the, uh, there was unrest in the streets, the Democratic Convention, and Kent State. But we also put a man on the moon, and multiple people on the moon, and automobile design was at its peak, and rock and roll was really good. And, you know, if you look at all the different eras that I've lived through, there are these eras where you think, at the time, like, whoa, this sucks. And then later on, you look back and you go, yeah, I know, but like, Blondie's first record is really good. <laughs> and we've been edging toward a time that, I mean, I think right now, we all kind of agree, this is no good. <laughs> we're not in a, We're not in a good time. And not only are we not in a good time, but pop music's not any good either. Mm-hmm. Like what's good right now is hard to, it's hard to see. This is a terrible time to live in Seattle. Seattle is going through an upheaval that will make Seattle a way better place to live 15 or 20 years from now. And the people that move into Seattle 15 years from now are not going to know about what it was like now when it was impossible to get around when everybody was furious, when it felt like the city was 
just barely hanging together. And some of the stuff that's making it terrible to live here now is we're doing it on behalf of the people 15 years from now. We're making changes that we should have made 30 years ago. Also, how is that not a good time to be there? Because it sucks to live here now. Mm. Like, like it's the, it's the crazy thing about a lifespan, right? I'm only ever going to be 50 years old once. Right. And it's now. And would I prefer to be 50 years old in a time when Seattle's transportation problems had all been solved and had settled down and people could move around freely? Yes, I would prefer that because I'm living in a time when every time you walk out the door, it's just like you're just signing up for a, uh, for a nightmare hour. Just trying to get you know from here to a place I can see on the horizon. It's just I'm just trying to get right over there. But I can't get there without a lot of agony. And when I moved to Seattle, that wasn't true. Now, when I moved to Seattle, I didn't realize that that was what was nice about it here. Because Seattle had never, I mean, I guess there had been traffic problems in Seattle in the 70s. But if in 1999, if I was here and I wanted to go there, I got in my car and I drove there. You didn't have to think about what time of day it was right? or what route you were going to take. You just went from here to there, but you didn't realize that that was a gift or you didn't realize that was a, uh, that that was a, a form of wealth. And now, uh, now doesn't matter how rich you are. You cannot get from here to there. Now, 15, 20 years from now, the pain and suffering we're experiencing now hopefully will produce a new reality. And I don't mean that we're building a great transportation network that, uh, that means that 20 years from now, everybody just rides around on hover bikes. I mean that it's so unbearable now that something's going to give, there's going to be some, something has to change. You know, it, we, it can't keep like this. It can't be like this. It can't keep getting worse, right? Well, I mean, why do you say that? Because we're at a point that the city can't. Because I, my understanding is that things can always get worse. Mm. No, because the, because humans are innovative, naturally innovative, and it will, something will happen. Somebody will devise a solution. And as we know, there are tens and tens and thousands of people right now that are working on devising a variety of solutions. Uh, we don't know what's going to, we don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, I don't think anybody could have predicted I mean, you can, you can, you can talk into your phone right now and it will translate it in real time and you can hand it to somebody and they can read what you just said in their own language. Um, 20 years from now, either we'll all work from home and nobody will drive around or there will be a, a system of mass transit 
around self-driving cars and computer-controlled grids that makes traffic flow into a manageable system. I mean, some combination of those two. But, you know, I'll be 70 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. So maybe when you look at the arc of my life, as it relates to transportation, I'll be able to say, well, when I was a kid, we used to sit in gridlock on the freeway. And everybody's big American car would sit there pumping leaded gas smoke into the air until their radiators boiled over <laughs> while we tried to inch down the road on these two-lane freeways. And then there was an energy crisis and nobody could get gas. But then there was this period where they built a bunch of roads, they cleaned up the cars, gas was cheap. And from about 1985, when I got my driver's license to 2005. That was tw 20 years where transportation wasn't something I had to think about. Right. I had 20 great years and they were the years between when I first started driving until the time when I was driving my band all around the world. I could just stop at any gas station, put gas in. It wasn't expensive and just drive freely. And those were 20 great years. And I didn't even realize how great they were. And then from 2007 to 2027, it sucked. And from a transportation standpoint, it just sucked. It sucked to own a car. It sucked to put gas in it. It sucked to drive around. Sucked to park. Everything sucked about it. And then hopefully in 2027, it became fun to get around again. And if I was over here and I wanted to get over there, it just wasn't a thing I had to think about or worry about. It didn't cause me stress. It wasn't that expensive. You just moved around like you, like you would dream. And... And when I look at the overlay of my life and the, and the hopefully 90 years that it spans and I can see it broken up into four 20 year periods where transportation is good for 20 years and then bad for 20 years. Yeah. Like I can live with that. <laughs> like it it's much better than. It could have been a lot worse, right? I mean, I, a lot of my friends that have kids that are 16 years old now, their kids aren't interested in getting driver's licenses. They don't see what the, the point would be. What's the advantage for them of learning to drive? They live in a city. They get around just fine. Um, they don't put a lot of thought into the fact that their moms and dads drive them places still. But they don't have that feeling that I had, which was, I want a driver's license as fast as I can get one because then I'll be free. 
like if I had a car, if I could get in a car and just go where I wanted, can you imagine? Pure freedom, the ultimate freedom. Freedom. I could go over to a friend's house and they could get in my car and their parents would be cool with that and we would drive off, drive somewhere. We could drive to Girdwood. I remember the first time some friends and I uh, left Anchorage. We headed up to Palmer and we stopped to uh, visit a friend on the way out of town. And the friend's mom answered the door and she said, oh, he went, he's not here this weekend. He went to Boys State. He's at Boys State, which is in Fairbanks. And Fairbanks is as far away from Anchorage as you could even conceive. I mean, it's all the way across Alaska as far as we could, as far as we were concerned at the time. Um, and we were like, oh man, he's at Boys State, like. Bummer. And then we kind of looked at each other and said, wait a minute, we could drive to Fairbanks. And you might as well have said that we could drive to New York. But we realized we could drive to Fairbanks. And we started to drive. And drove all night. But it was kind of summertime. And so the sun was up kind of the whole way. Or it was... It was yeah, late spring, early summer. And it takes you six hours to drive to Fairbanks. And we got to Fairbanks, and it was like, I mean, we'd all been to Fairbanks as kids, but we drove there ourselves, right. and nobody in Under Anchorage your own, even knew. your own steam got you there. Yeah, they didn't even know. I called my mom from Fairbanks, and she was like, where are you? And I said, Fairbanks. And it, and it blew her mind, too. How did you get to fair? You drove to Fairbanks, but gas was 85 cents a gallon. But a kid nowadays, 16 year old kid, 17 year old kid, they don't even want a driver's license. So I feel like, yeah, maybe I was lucky. Maybe I lived in a period that was kind of like a, like the last waning days of the wild west. When you could buy, you could buy a Fiat convertible for eighteen hundred dollars and drive it to Fairbanks, and <laughs> and uh, I think and I think we realized how great it was. We just didn't know that that it, that that time would come to an end. And I'm sure that when the motor car first arrived in places, and you know, and the fifty year olds at the time were like. I remember one time I rode my horse all the way over to Kansas City and back. And as far as the <laughs> eye could see, it was just passenger pigeons and buffalo. <laughs> um, you know, that you, you, do, you can read back in history and read the, the sentimental reflections of people at various different times. The sort of autobiographies that people wrote about. Well, then the steamship came and it ruined everything. And that sort of sentimentality, it's an interesting, it's interest, it's an interesting way to read history because there are some of those that are, uh, what am I trying to find here? Um, there, there are some of those that make you realize like, wow, we have lost We've lost a lot. 
and some of what we've lost is would be kind of simple to regain if we all agreed that it was something that we had lost and not just something that we had improved upon. And I think that's, that's kind of what, what happens to me when I think about this house, like the people that want to replace that kitchen, they feel like we've improved upon it and why not benefit from those improvements. Mm Mm-hmm. And my desire to keep it the way it was isn't just that I feel like everything works fine, just leave it alone. And it's not just that not only does it work fine, but it's kind of beautiful and I want to keep it because it's beautiful. I also feel, I'm also, I also want to keep it as it was keep that kitchen as it was as an act of sentimentality because i want to i want to imagine i want to live life like it was because it stimulates my imagination in a way i think a lot of people's imaginations are stimulated by uh having an ipad in their refrigerator because <laughs> you know, because they can look at their refrigerator and the iPad tells them what the temperature and humidity of every one of their rooms is, and they feel like they're living on the Starship Enterprise. And I want to look at that avocado refrigerator and see my daughter's school artwork um, hanging from it from a magnet of Wiley E. Coyote that I got when I was 11 because I want to imagine that that some of the things that we've lost or some of the things I feel like we've squandered are still available to us. It's still possible to live unencumbered by knowing what the humidity of my bathroom is. Mm 